They've been at it a long time by now, many months, maybe years, years of wandering through strange and familiar places, years of following after the one who called them, called them from their homes, from their villages and towns, called them from their vocations, called them to a new vocation, from fishers of fish to fishers of human beings. And who was this man they were following? Okay, just the facts, ma'am. Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Mary. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the carpenter's son. Jesus, the rabbi. Jesus, the prophet. Jesus, the healer. Jesus, the teacher of multitudes. Jesus, their friend. Jesus, the Messiah. Well, here it gets a little more speculative. They were still trying to figure this out. Jesus, the Christ. I mean... What did that really mean anyway? Clearly not a warrior, at least not in any way they'd recognize. A rebel, maybe, but so far only in a rhetorical sense. A rabble-rouser, an agitator, one who challenged the authority of the chief priests and elders, all those underlings of the empire, one who challenged the authority of Rome, a subversive. So, one apparently determined to see Jerusalem set free from Roman oppression, but one who did not take the straight path toward ending that oppression. No swords, no weapons of any kind. In fact, Jesus preached against such violence. He told his followers to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecuted them, to turn the other cheek, to walk the second mile. He blessed the meek and the sorrowful, the poor and the peacemakers. Not any ordinary kind of subversive not any ordinary kind of Messiah, and yet that's what Peter named him. You were the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Peter said. And Jesus praised Peter and told him that he'd been given such insight by God. Then Jesus told his disciples not to tell anybody what Peter had said. Then Jesus told them about going to Jerusalem to die. And then he told them that if they wanted to follow him, they needed to be prepared to suffer right along with him. And they'd been following him a long time by now, months, maybe years, following him through places both strange and familiar, now following him to Jerusalem. And after following him for so long, they still had so little clue as to who Jesus really was. Well, way back when it was morning in America, or when much of America was in mourning, the Reagan years, um, in other words, 1981 to be precise, Mary Lou and I went to Calcutta, India with several other seminarians. And we went to serve with Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity. We went to learn about Calcutta. We went with uh, some sense of purpose. We went with a great deal of apprehension. We went without a clue, frankly. We stayed for three and a half months, three and a half months that changed our lives. And if not for those months in Calcutta, well, we would not be here this morning. But that's a story for another time. What I want to tell you about this morning is what happened before we went to Calcutta. Now, like the diligent cross-cultural adventures that we hoped to be, we had some preparation before we went. We learned something about the culture, the politics, the history of India generally, and Calcutta in particular. We saw slides and watched movies and heard stories and read books. Not nearly enough information to adequately ready us for Calcutta just enough to terrify us, really, uh, making us aware of just how little we knew, just enough to make us humble, I hope. There were eight of us. Lynn was our group leader. 
And she and Mary Lee met us at the airport in the middle of the night and got us stowed away onto a bus and hustled us off to the YWCA where we would spend the summer. The group that was being met and stowed and hustled uh, included me and Mary Lou, John, Debbie, and Diane, the newbies. A few weeks later, a second leader arrived named Bridget. So three of us knew their way around to some extent, and the rest of us were entirely at their mercy. Fortunately, their mercy was pretty large and, and pretty generously given. But here I've drifted back to Calcutta again, and what I want to tell you about is what happened before we got there. Now, back in those days, it was thought that the best way to create a sense of group cohesion was to inflict suffering upon the group as a group, to force bonding by putting a group of strangers under pressure, to reveal the very worst of the individual members of the group in order to get past the shock of it all and on towards something resembling mutual submission, respect, and even love. Kind of like Survivor in reverse, with the individual members of the team called upon to make sure that everybody makes it safely through even if the whole time you were wishing you could call a tribal council and boot one or two or maybe all of them off the island. Anyhow, there was a sadist, I mean, saint um, on the campus of Gordon-Conwell Seminary named uh, Jerry, whose job it was to construct these group bondings ex bonding experiences. And Jerry's way of bringing groups together was to haul them up into the White Mountains of New Hampshire in the winter, in the snow, to camp for a week. That's right, in order to prepare a group of seminarians for their time in Calcutta, India, in the summer, before the monsoons came, with the humidity of Lancaster at its worst and a temperature many degrees hotter, we were trucked off to the White Mountains in the winter, in the snow, to camp. Now, through some purposeful dawdling and stalling and hemming and hawing, we didn't get in the vans till dusk. We drove for a couple of hours up into the mountains, snow all around us, and and partway there, it started to sleet or rain or something in between. Not the kind of rain that makes you think spring is coming, but more the kind of rain that makes you want to desperately turn around and go back home, the kind of rain that froze as soon as it hit the ground. Then Jerry pulled off the road and onto a dirt path leading into the woods, the dark, forbidding woods of a grim fairy tale or a bad horror movie, Blair Witch Project Woods, uh, the woods you'd expect to find Jason lurching around or maybe the abominable snowman or a pack of wolves seeking to dine in the flesh of soft-skinned seminarians. Scary woods, uh, in other words. The van stopped and everybody out. It was dark as the other side of the moon. But not to worry, we had flashlights. Now, not those big useful flashlights, mind you, with the huge bright bulbs and the massive batteries, the kind of flashlights that can offer comfort and a sense of security. No, just your regular flashlights, 2D battery flashlights. Barely enough light to uh, see your feet when they were right under you the whole time. And we had tents. Now, somehow amidst all the preparations and all the dawdling and stalling earlier that day, no one had bothered to tell us how to set up our tents. Well, we were about to learn in the dark, in the snow, in the freezing rain. You've heard of wailing and gnashing of teeth? <laughs> well, at that point, we were still too proud to wail, but... Um, we got some first-hand experience at teeth gnashing, uh, the sound of a bunch of miserable, woeful, dread-filled, and incompetent seminarians setting up their tents on the frozen ground of New Hampshire in the middle of the night. 
Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, why just these three? Matthew doesn't tell us. Maybe they were Jesus' favorites, but that doesn't sound right. I mean, the thought of Jesus having favorites, well, it kind of makes me nervous, actually. So let's say that was not the reason why Peter, James, and John got singled out for the hike up the mountain. Let's say instead that they were the remedial group, the slow learners, the ones in need of a little extra help. I like that better. It makes me think Jesus might have picked me to hike along with him. Well, whatever the reason, they followed Jesus up the mountain. And we have no way of knowing what they were thinking as they hiked, but since when has that stopped me? Does Jesus have some sort of death wish? Maybe he needs a doctor. I should have worn my other shoes. My feet are killing me. Seriously? We couldn't have had this little bonding moment in some sweet valley along a gurgling brook? I wonder if anybody else is thinking about getting out of this sinking ship. I bet he's thinking about getting out of this sinking ship. Well, I'll go to Jerusalem, but at the first sign of trouble, I'm out of here. But what about the thing Peter said? Could it be true? I mean, what does it mean? I'm hungry. I knew I should have packed a lunch. Are we there yet? And finally, they staggered over the last bit of incline and were on top of the mountain, winded, gasping, wondering why they'd come, why they'd followed, why them. And then all heaven broke loose. We wore all of our clothes every day. Multiple pairs of pants, several shirts, the wool ones on the outside, everything else on the inside. Only the boots came off at night. That was it. The smell of wood smoke and wet wool can bring it all back to me. We cooked and grumped our way through the first few days. We came to deeply despise each other. Uh, all those little quirks that we'd found so amusing and so charming on the flatlands suddenly became repulsive and loathsome. We could barely stand to look at each other. And then we were given the task of writing a covenant, a set of promises that we would keep together while we were in Calcutta. Now, if Calcutta seemed far away before, it seemed unimaginable, sitting by a smoldering campfire in wet wool. And frankly, the thought of going to Calcutta with these loads, these irritating, annoying, clueless loads, was unbearable. But by now, our wills had been broken. And so with all the grace of Gollum leading Sam and Frodo onto Mordor, we <laughs> muttered and whined and got to work. Now, the covenant, of course, was the whole point of our suffering. It was the main fruit of the journey, the purpose of the trek, the reason for the freezing to make claims for ourselves and on each other. Claims that would take us beyond the White Mountains and all the way to Lower Circular Road. Claims that would set us apart, that would make us a group, a people, where before we had not been a people. It was a written account of what was happening to us as we chattered our teeth under the gray skies and the freezing rain. We still did not really get it at all. We didn't get why. We had to follow old Jerry into the cold woods. Why we had to learn to see each other when the chips were down, when the veneer was rubbed away. Even as we were diligently writing that covenant, we didn't know exactly why we'd come to that place that we'd been led. We still didn't get it. So there they were, Peter, James, and John, bent over, catching their breath after the long climb. And then all heaven broke loose. Jesus lit up like the sun. Moses and Elijah talking to him for all the world like they were at a, a dinner party. What they were talking about is anybody's guess. Matthew doesn't even speculate, which means that Peter and James and John didn't hear a thing. Too dazzled, most likely, too 
dazzled to even think about eavesdropping. And anyway, who'd dare to eavesdrop on such an illustrious trio? But then Peter, dear Peter, my good friend Peter, does what he does best. He blurts out something, right, anything, in an effort to mark the moment, to, to nail it down and make it real and forever. Peter the Rock wants to build a memorial, a headstone, as it were, or three of them, three little booths to mark the occasion, a shrine for future travelers to visit and then recite the story to their children, a place for Peter and James and John to bring the other disciples and show them with only a touch of pride just what they saw that day when they got to the top of that tall mountain. And then God spoke and Peter wisely stopped talking. A bright cloud loomed over them and a voice spoke from the bright cloud. This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John did the only sensible thing under the circumstances. They fell flat on their faces and were overcome by fear. And then this most lovely verse. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. On one of the last days of our winter sojourn in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, very aptly named mountains, by the way, um, Jerry came to us with his latest evil plan. The covenant had been written. We'd gotten over hating each other and had come to a sort of campsite detente uh, with a growing but unacknowledged affection for each other. Still, we dreaded what Jerry had planned for us. Jerry gave us a topographical map of, a map of the area, a strange and unfamiliar sheet of paper that looked less like a map than it did one of those electrical schematic drawing things. He gave us a compass, a real one too, sturdy, chunky, solid, serious. Then he pointed to the top of a nearby mountain and told us we were going to bushwhack our way from here to there and back again. Now, I knew the word bushwhack, but it always associated it with some dude lurking in the weeds and ready to shoot the next unwary stranger passing by. Fortunately, that's not what Jerry meant. No, he meant something far more alarming. Uh, he meant making our way up the mountain using that weird map and the compass. Then Jerry disappeared, and off we went. It took us two or three hours altogether uh, with figuring out the map and the compass and then working our way through the woods and then climbing the mountain in our wet woolens and clunky boots. It was exhausting. We started out joking and laughing and singing, we're off to see the wizard. But that ended pretty fast, and soon all you could hear was heavy breathing. On we walked, on we hiked, on we staggered, on we followed the directions we'd been given. We finally made it to the top. We made it to the top of the mountain, bent over, wheezing, trying to catch our breath. Then one by one we looked up, and we were dazzled into silence. The sky broke open, the clouds drifted apart, the sun came down, and the world was suddenly huge and beautiful. We felt warm for the first time in days and shed our outer layers. We didn't huddle together, but we each went and found our own separate spot, our own little piece of the mountaintop, stared off into the distance. It was breathtaking, gorgeous, unbelievably beautiful, worth every single step, every aching muscle, every gasping lung. What we saw when we made it to the top of that mountain was worth every bit of it and more. Now, eventually, we would have to head back down, but not until we had to. We soaked up the sun. We stood awestruck by the view. And then finally, 
we went down the mountain and made our way back to camp. The rest of our time there in the woods was just as uncomfortable, just as wet and cold and smoky as it had been before we went up the mountain. I won't lie to you and pretend that we suddenly became devoted winter campers. People thrived on hardship, uh, relished the challenge of sleeping on a good three feet, three foot snowfall with a two inch layer of ice on top. No, no, no. Not then, not now. But, but, what I saw on that mountain top in 1981 has stayed with me all these years. It was a transformative moment, a moment that changed me, a moment that shaped me, a moment of transcendent beauty altogether unexpected, a miraculous gift found at the end of a long walk up a high mountain. Peter and James and John accompanied Jesus back down the mountain and, and were quickly confronted by the real world, a world that seemed untouched by the transfiguration they had just witnessed, untouched, unmoved, and apparently unaffected by the revealing of Jesus, a world where little boys still suffered terribly, where well-meaning people find their attempts to be helpful thwarted, a world in which death still awaits in the form of a cross, a world whose shadows seemed impenetrable even by the light of heaven. We don't know what lingered in Peter, James, and John, what they remembered and what they cherished in their hearts following their experience on the mountaintop. Perhaps it was lost in everything that followed, a candle snuffed out by the winds coming out of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Maybe they simply stowed it away with all the other confusing, mind-blowing things that they witnessed on the way with Jesus. Just another weird thing that happened on the way. Or maybe, just maybe, what they saw stayed with them. Maybe it gave them just a bit more light to see by as they surveyed the world around them. Maybe it continued, maybe it continued to draw them together to make them a company, a community, a gathering of dear friends telling old stories of wonder around a fire. Maybe it served as a kind of milestone, a, a marker, a talisman that they would turn to from time to time, holding it again in their mind's eye, remembering every detail, every precious detail. Maybe they found hope in the remembering, or truth, or confirmation. Confirmation that the long, hard, and so often baffling journey that they'd taken with Jesus was worth every step. Confirmation that despite their doubts, their fears, their ignorance, their being utterly unfit for the walking, despite all of that, it had been the trip of a lifetime, one they could not imagine having missed. For in that brief shining moment, and in its memory, they beheld the very best of God, God's own beloved, God's own love, God's own self in human form. And that God, that incarnate one, that Jesus, was their friend. Their friend. He called them. They followed. Their friend, the light of the world, the Messiah, Jesus, their friend. And they knew, they knew that they would do it all over again for just another glimpse of that beautiful, beautiful, most amazing light at the top of the mountain. They would do it all over again for just another glimpse of Jesus. Amen.